The scripture reading this morning is found beginning in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. We'll go to chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, your pew Bible, it's on page 1163. I'll start with verse 8 of uh, chapter 19. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on him and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. And there's danger that not only our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess herself, 
who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. And when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Let's pray for Brother Neil as he brings a message. Welcome back to our series, People of the Way. You know, before we were ever called Christians, uh, we identified ourselves as the way. Uh, way back at the very beginning. And that you may have run across that as we, as we read there. You know, uh, some, it said some of the Jews were uh, maligning the name of the way. You know, and that, uh, so that's kind of how we identified. We were people who followed Jesus' way. They were ordinary, common folks living in an uncommon way as they sought to follow Jesus. And so we're looking at a particular group uh, of, of way followers, if you will, from the very beginning. This was a church that was planted in the city of Ephesus, the ancient great city of Ephesus, uh, just about two decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it was kind of co-planted by a guy named Apollos and, and the Apostle Paul, who we read more about today. And, and we kind of looked at some of the beginnings of that last week as we talked about the importance of, of the Holy Spirit and how they didn't understand the full gospel until uh, you know, Paul got there and explained to them the rest of the story. 
you know, that they needed the Holy Spirit's power to live this way out. That this wasn't just another religion. It was about God living in them. And so that was huge last week. And we picked up today right where we left off last week. And everything that you just read this morning uh, comes in the context of that. Of Paul showing up and saying, hey, uh, let me pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. You need to rely on His power to live this way. And and so that's the story we've been looking at, that we've begun to look at. Uh, We're going to look at this people of the way in Ephesus over the next several weeks. And and it's going to be fascinating, I think, for us to go back in time, almost 2,000 years, and see, you know, maybe what are some first things, if you will, that we've forgotten over the course of 2,000 years. And so we're just going to explore this particular people of the way. Now, why the people in Ephesus? Of all the churches that we know about from the early church, why this one? And the, I guess the most... The most obvious reason is that we know more about it than a lot of churches, you know, and maybe someday we'll take a look at another church. But this particular church, we get several glimpses of it, snapshots, if you will, starting with here in Acts, where we see its beginnings. Uh, But then, you know, fast forward 10 years and you've got Paul writing a letter to them. Fast forward a few more years, you've got a letter to their pastor. Uh, Fast forward a few more years, a couple more decades, and you've got a letter uh, from John the Revelator to, you know, in the book of Revelation, to this church in Ephesus with with an important warning. And so we get several snapshots through the life of this church. And so we're just going to kind of jump in and take a look and and see if there's some things we can learn for our church. And and one thing that jumps off the page at me is here's a, a church that started off incredibly small in one of the biggest cities of its day, probably the third most significant city in the world at that time, and turned it on its head in just a short couple of years as we, as we read today and as we're going to explore today. And so, wow. And when you think about this huge city, one of the things that would have come to mind for anyone in that day would have been this temple of Artemis that we read about a little bit today. And I just wanted to help you picture it a little bit. If you were here last week, you saw maybe a video and and they tried to show some scale models of it. It's been destroyed through the years and uh, there's not really much of anything left of it. But it was probably, quite possibly, the biggest structure in the world at that time. You know, with maybe the exception of like a pyramid or something like that. But this in the Roman world, my word, this is a picture of... Uh, the, the, the building in black there is the Parthenon. Are you familiar with the Parthenon? And Athens, it still stands. It's impressive. And, and in fact, if you can't make it over there to Greece, you could make it to Nashville. If you make it to Nashville, there's the University of Vanderbilt. And if you go on their campus, they have, they've built the Parthenon. <laughs> there's, a, there's a living replica of the Parthenon right there on their campus. And it's pretty incredible when... Last time I went with uh, Julie, I think it was pre-kids, back when we could travel wherever we wanted, see what we wanted to see, uh, we, we stopped by there and just took it in. It's, it's huge. And these huge pillars, and you wonder, you know, how did they, without cranes and stuff, how did they build this huge structure? But the, the structure in red is the Temple of Artemis. As big and as impressive as the Parthenon is, The temple of Artemis was taller and much grander. The pillars were bigger. 
I mean, it was one of the most impressive sights in the ancient world. In fact, it's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And, and so this dominated Ephesus. It dominated their economy. It dominated the entire region. You know, in a, in a region where pagan worship was the deal, the temple of Artemis was as good as it got. People traveled from all around to worship there at that temple of Artemis. The, the economy was built around it. I mean, you know, tourism was largely because of the temple of Artemis. And merchants that would come into town would go to worship at the temple of Artemis. And they would buy things in conjunction with that. They would seek out prostitutes in conjunction with that. It was a whole trade. I mean, it was huge for Ephesus. You can't overstate it. This was a, a massive city. It was a hub on the peninsula that we call Greece. And so next to Rome over in Italy, you had Ephesus just across the sea. And it was a significant place and a significant time. And here you have this little group of people. We're told about 12 guys and some, their, you know, their families, we presume. A small church. And Paul shows up and the Holy Spirit you know, they begin to rely on his power. He fills them. They begin to live in a radical way. We're told that Paul would speak time every day, you know, there. And all of a sudden things start happening, don't they? And what I want us to focus on today is, is you know, last week we talked about learning the way. This week about sharing the way. And I feel like for a lot of us, uh, that's, that's something that doesn't come comfortable you know, it just doesn't feel that comfortable to us to even talk about our faith. And just if I can, you know, I'm the confessions of a pastor here, you know, I, it's still something that I struggle with for as far as, you know, just talking about my faith, talking about Jesus in everyday conversation, even with my family or extended family or uh, certainly with acquaintances and friends. And, and, you know, even I think it's true for you, too, because even at church, you know, sometimes we find it's easier to talk about the weather, you know, or the ball game. Or, uh, you know, the LSU hired a new coach. Woo, we'll talk about that. But, you know, we're, we're less comfortable bringing up Jesus, talking about our faith, what's going on uh, with our church and ministries of our church and so forth and, and what God's doing in our lives. And, and there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But I've noticed that in my life. You know, you get me up here, I can talk about Jesus all day long. And I don't, don't need any amens on that. But, uh, but, you know, it's, it, this is easier somehow than just in conversation. And, and I think part of the reason for that, even though you could probably think of reasons in your own life, you know, but part of the reason for that, I think, is, is that we've made our faith a personal private thing in our culture. You know, along with politics and things that you don't discuss at the Thanksgiving dinner table. There's religion, there's your faith, you know, what you believe about things. It's best just to not bring it up, you know. It's, it's, it's personal, it's private. And, and there's a way, I think, in which the church has contributed to this. Um, and, you know, maybe you've had someone talk to you before about, well, do you have a, a personal relationship with Jesus? We've asked that question for decades now. Do you have a 
personal relationship with Jesus. And this was born out of a noble desire to, uh, to make sure that you're not just like riding on your family's coattails or something. You know that, yeah, well, we belong to this church. I'm good. No, no. Do you personally have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, because you can't just because your family has always been Presbyterian doesn't make you, you know, anything. Do you personally know Jesus? And that's where that came from. But, you know, sometimes I think we've turned it into, uh, well, that's a personal matter. You know, that's, that's something that's between me and God. It's really not any of your business. What I do with my faith. And, and that's a tragedy. Because as we're going to see at the beginning, it wasn't just personal. It wasn't just private. It was something public. And so it disrupted the entire community. It couldn't have disrupted the entire community if it had just been personal, if it had just been private, if it had just been something that, you know, keep under wraps and low-key about it, and, uh, and let's just make sure that you know, we don't ruffle any feathers. Uh, now, this is not going to be a, a sermon about ruffling feathers in, in the sense that, you know, don't, don't, we don't... We know Christians who are, who are those kind of Christians, right? And then, you know, oh my goodness, obnoxious and kind of embarrassing. And they, oh my, you know, don't, don't be that person. This is not about that, you know. It's not about being one of those Christians. This is just about taking what we've made overly private, maybe, and, and talking about some ways that maybe we can be a little more, well, biblical with our faith and, and get back to doing some of the things that we first did. 2,000 years ago. Now we read a, a pretty long chunk of scripture there, so challenge your attention spans today. But it was pretty riveting. Uh, it was pretty, pretty crazy accounts, you know, as, as again we're in this book of Acts, it's not a letter, it, it's kind of like the Gospels in the sense that it tells stories of what happened instead of telling about the gospel and what Jesus did. Uh, it's talking about what the early church did and what his apostles did. And, and so it's, you know, filled with these accounts of what our beginnings, really. And so it's pretty impressive. If you've never read through the whole book of Acts or it's been a while, uh, go home and just read through the book of Acts. It's, it's you know, full of accounts like this. It, it's, not, uh, it's not the kind of reading that put you to sleep you know read read a translation like new living translation or something if you if you'd like that it's kind of more uh in your in your language but just read these accounts and these and these uh, stories of what the early church did and and we ran across several today that took place in the city of ephesus that reveal that you know right after again taking place in the context of you know paul prayed that the holy spirit would fill their lives and then man they were off to the races and they were meeting at first in synagogues, you know, with the Jewish people and talking to them about it. But it says the Jewish people started giving them a hard time. So Paul said, see ya. I'm done with you. We're going to go. And so they went to a secular venue. And he began teaching every day. And again, this being a major metropolitan hub and, and the Temple of Artemis being there. I mean, people from all over the region coming through Ephesus. And over the course of a couple of years... Paul talked to people about Jesus from all over that region. I mean, really, you, maybe that's why he spent more time there than just about anywhere else that we have a record of. Uh, there in Ephesus, going two to three years of just teaching, 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 telling about Jesus to anyone that would listen. And, uh, and so word about Jesus spread. 
Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit was doing pretty incredible things. Uh, we're told, you know, miraculous stuff was happening through Paul, whether it was healing or casting out evil spirits. And, and we have this one crazy story where some guys tried to imitate him. And uh, we have seven guys that were sons of a chief priest, a Jewish chief priest. And, and so they thought they'd get into the demon casting business with Paul. And so they just said, you know, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, you know, come out of him. And they thought they, it was just like a magic trick they could do. And, and, this, and this demon-possessed guy says, heard of Jesus, yeah, know who he is. And I kind of know about that Paul guy, but who in the world are you? Um, he was not impressed at all. And in fact, he turned around and beat all seven of them to a pulp. Now, friends, when you get the clothes beat off you, <laughs> when somebody beats the pants off you, that's a beating right there. And, uh, and, and word spreads, okay? Even back then without news, you know, no one caught it on their camera. <laughs> because they didn't have smartphones. But word spread like wildfire. Hey, these seven guys just got the pants beat off them. <laughs> trying to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus like Paul does. And so, again, word about Jesus through a really bizarre story there keeps spreading through this town. And then really, though, the most amazing, the most astounding thing of all took place at the kind of the end of that account we read. And Paul's getting ready to leave, in fact, we're told. He's been there, you know, two to three years in Ephesus. And a riot breaks out in the city. And this is pretty mind-blowing when you think about, again, 12 guys, their families, this little small community inside a really big community. They just start meeting together and they start talking about Jesus and they start trying to follow Him. We're going to talk about some of the specific things they were doing with their faith. But here they are, and in such a short span of time, they turn this community on its head. There's a city-wide riot because of the way. It's, I mean, it boggles the mind. Basically, what had happened is we're told that because of the way and because of Jesus being inserted into this pagan community, the, the trade centering their, their economy, centered around that temple of Artemis, begin to fall apart. Why? Because people weren't going to the temple of Artemis anymore. They weren't buying the shrines anymore. They weren't buying the stuff for the sacrifices anymore. They weren't seeking out prostitutes anymore. Such a significant number of people stopped worshiping at the temple of Artemis that it hit the pocketbooks of the economy. You know, like basically the Chamber of Commerce gets together and says, we've got a problem here. <laughs> Our economy is tanking because of this way. We've got to do something. And so they stir up everybody and say, you know, hey, this is the pride of our city, the temple of Artemis. What's happening here? And great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, this is like our city's mascot, if you will. This is what we're all about. This is what we've always been all about. It's our claim to fame throughout the world. And they, boy, they riled everybody up. Big, big riot breaks out. And they drag some of them, some of the Christian leaders, into this big assembly. And they just start shouting for hours. And, uh, and finally, a city clerk shows up and gets them to quiet down and go home. Because he's worried to death that they're going to get in trouble. See, Ephesus was one of the few free cities in the Roman Empire. 
And, and if you start having riots and stuff, that, that, that can go by the wayside quickly. And they valued their freedom. And so he said, guys, you know, Rome doesn't like this kind of stuff. We've got to quiet it down. We don't have any kind of reason for this assembly. It hasn't been called officially. This is, you know, you're out of order. And we're going to get in trouble here if you don't go home. So he sends them home. But my word, in two to three short years, to have that happen. And this was not like an isolated instance even. We have even secular accounts from the early church where this sort of thing was happening. In fact, just 50, 60 years after the church, after this event happened in Ephesus, uh, there's this guy, this governor, a Roman governor named Pliny, and we've read his stuff before in here, but he wrote this letter to the emperor saying, what do I do about these Christians? See, and he was in a slightly different part of Rome. He wasn't in Ephesus. But the church was doing the same thing to his community as it had done in Ephesus. And so he writes, and just, you'll pick up on, uh, it's just some interesting insight. You know, of course, keep in mind, this is from the Roman perspective. And he's trying to put a good light on things to the emperor and saying, hey, we're making progress here and that kind of thing, but I just wanted to check in with you on some things. And listen to what he says. He said, this is, this is him, by the way. He's a good-looking dude. Old Pliny. He said, I postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you. Again, he's talking to the emperor of Rome. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved, the number of Christians. For many persons of every age, every rank, both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread, you know, that's rich coming from a guy that worshipped idols, you know, (laughs) has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and the farms. And it seemed, you know, but he said, it seems possible to check and cure it. That's the wishful thinking of a guy that wants to save face with the emperor. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, that the established religious rites, long neglected, are are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which, until now, very few purchasers could be found. Hence, it's easy to imagine what a, a multitude of people could be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. Uh, unfortunately, old Pliny didn't predict things correctly, <laughs> and it went the other direction. And, and a couple centuries later, we had one last Roman emperor that took one last stab at trying to stamp out Christianity and revive the pagan uh, religion, and it just didn't pan out for him. And Christianity won in the end. But we see time and again in different pockets of this pagan culture, wherever Christianity would take root, the pagan worship declined and it hurt the economy of a lot of these guys and this happened again and again and this is just incredible to think about especially in the context of Ephesus where it was in such a short span of time that that their economy of this huge city would be so affected by that small group of people in that small humble beginning I mean think about it in our context for a second and let's just say that here in West Monroe you know, some little movement took place, and all of a sudden, in the short span of a couple of years, all the LSU fans, all the ULM fans, all the Texas Tech fans suddenly became Mississippi State or Alabama fans. 
<laughs> Just, I mean, it's not even plausible. Or, or, you know, consider this. What if, what if, like, a dozen guys got together and started a movement, and in two years... They just about upended and, and just wiped out the hunting and fishing industry. <laughs> I mean, that would be crazy, right? It's not possible. It's not plausible. That's core to our culture around here. I mean, you're just not going to get guys to stop hunting. You're not going to get people to stop cheering for our teams. That's just not going to happen. This is even crazier, <laughs> all right? Because you're talking about a really small group of people in a, one of the major metropolitan areas, one of the centers for the pagan worship that was central to all of Rome. I mean, the entire Roman Empire, the entire, uh, you know, all the Greeks before the Roman Empire had worshipped these pagan idols. It was central to who they were. It was central to their culture in a way that trumps LSU football, in a way that trumps hunting and fishing. I mean, this was huge. This was their religion. This was their faith from generations and in two years, to have it so impacted that people are no longer buying stuff, they're no longer going, they're no, I mean, this is incredible to think about. And it reminds us, it should remind us, that there is no power that can compare to the gospel shared in word and in action. There's simply no power on earth like the gospel shared in word and action, especially in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing like it on earth. I mean, can you think of anything else that would have that kind of profound effect? The world's never seen anything like that. Except the gospel. This was an unbelievable account. Not only that, but there was another thing from this account that I almost missed as I was reading through this. And I think it's because I was preconditioned to miss it in a way. Because like we talked about, we've been told time and again that our faith by, by our culture outside and even sometimes by the church inside, that our faith is a personal thing only. It's just personal, it's private, it's between you and God. But when I read this account... And all the things that they did and what happened as a result of it, I realized that the gospel is not just a matter of private choice, but of public change. And we're going to explore that as we think about, you know, how can we do better at sharing the way? You know, not just learning about the way, not just relying on the Holy Spirit's power to live this way, but how can we share the way, the way that they did? And when you consider, you know, the huge impact they had, it makes you want to say, man, maybe we should just steal their outreach program, right? <laughs> but then the problem is you, you start looking and apparently, from what we can read, they had no formal outreach program. They had no faith promise program. They didn't have even like a door-to-door evangelism program from what we can read. I mean, we don't know everything that they had. We don't know everything, but surely if it was something that was, you know, explained, if they felt like, man, this explains this incredible thing, surely they would have included it, along with all these other things they said that they were doing. But no, they didn't have a a formal outreach program. 
So let's just look at what are some of the things that we know from the text that they were doing that were public in nature and not just private. Now obviously there's the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit was doing through Paul in a powerful way and that, you, you know, that can't be counted out. But we know one thing, they were, they were meeting needs. And especially as Paul was there, we know that healings were taking place, demons were being cast out, but, but beyond the miraculous, in the early church, I'm sure it was the case in Ephesus because we have accounts of it being the case in other churches, uh, both from New Testament sources and again from secular sources like from the Romans, that the early church was really good at meeting people's needs, whether it was their health, you know, by praying for healing and by, uh, by caring for them, you know, by even sharing medicine or, you know, oils with them that would have helped soothe them and, and helped with the healing process and things like that that they did in a, in a caring sort of way. Or feeding those who were poor, both in their community and beyond their community, those in need. We know that they did this. They met people's needs. When you do that, your faith is no longer just private. You're taking it into the public square. You're caring for real people in your community. You're meeting their needs. And and it opens a door for you to share about why you're meeting their needs. Why you're doing something that no one else would be doing. And we know that the church has done this through generations. I mean, most of the hospitals, most of the prison ministries, most of anything like that was started by Christians following Jesus. Doing what Jesus did, meeting people's needs where they were at. And if you, you know, if the media or a college professor or someone tries to tell you that Christianity is, is oppressive or holding people back or holding people down, it just hasn't been the case historically and it shouldn't ever be the case on our watch either because we've always been about meeting needs. But that's not all that they did. We're told that they were openly confessing. It says, many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Now's where we start to get a little less comfortable. This is what they did. These, these first believers, they heard about the way, and when they signed up for the way, they came in and they said, guys, I'm just going to tell you. Here's what I was doing. And, and a lot of them would have been like, yep, uh, I hear you, man. I was there too. And they openly confessed what they had been doing, what they had been up to, the evil, the sin in their life. We got a long ways to go on that one. <laughs> I mean, public testimony is, uh, is huge when it comes to sharing the way. When it comes to the fact that your faith is not just a private choice, but it's about public change. It's about a public change in your life. That's what baptism represents. And that's why a lot of times when we do baptisms, we try to share testimonies, people's stories. Because that's powerful and that's what they've been doing since the very beginning. They just openly said, hey, here's what's going on. But here's a reality that we need to own in our day and time. And I'm not exactly sure what we need to do to fix it. But we can just start by owning it, alright? And that is that people are not comfortable coming in here and openly confessing what they're leaving behind when they come to Christ. 
I don't know, I'm not pointing any blame or saying, I'm just, I have observed, and this isn't just our church, but I have observed when people come in here, they, they feel like they would be shamed maybe, or at least they would feel ashamed, that it would be awkward if they got up here and said, man, I struggled with pornography, I'm leaving that behind. I struggled with drugs. You know, I, this is where I was coming from. You know, I was, I was an abuser. No one wants to do that in here. Because in here, we're all supposed to be good, right? We're all supposed to have it together. We're all supposed to come in and, hey, you know, no, I've got it together. How about you? You got it together too? Good, we got it together. And I don't know exactly how we go about fixing that, but we've, we've got to at least start by owning that it's a problem. And, I mean, the church ought to be a place, shouldn't it? Where when people come to faith in Christ, their, their open confession should be a cause of celebration. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? That's what it's all about for all of us. That, that we're leaving stuff behind. We've all had to do it. You know, and if we just all come in here and act like that we've always had it together, we're just, it's a lie. And so this ought not to be a place where people come and feel like, well, I've got to act like I have it together. It ought to be a place that when they're baptized, you know, they ought to be feeling free to say, man, here's what I'm leaving behind. And we all are excited about that for them because we've had to do that before too. I don't know. That's what I read about here. Isn't that what you read too? This is what they were doing. Their faith wasn't just a private choice, you know, that, well, I, I know what I'm leaving behind, you know, and I might kind of allude to you that there were some things back there, but, uh, but I'm not going to get into it because that's kind of personal and it's private and, and that's my business. No, for them it was about a public change that it made in their life. That wasn't all. Oh, you wish it was all, but that wasn't all. <laughs> we're also told that a number who had practiced sorcery, popular in their day, popular in their pagan religion, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now that means nothing to you. That could be $10 (laughs) for all you know. So let me help you out. This is just what I was told, and we'll just call this an estimate because I'm not sure anybody really exactly knows what the rate of exchange would be today here 2,000 years later. But this was a, a drachma, was a, a silver piece worth about a day's wage. So let's do some math. Uh, that's like what you would have earned if you worked 137 years, 7 days a week. Or 199 day, years if you wanted to do 5 day weeks. <laughs> All right? So, if you could live for 199 years, and from the time you were born, you worked five days a week, then you might get there to that huge amount. Now, the median income in West Monroe and Monroe in our community is is just under twenty nine thousand dollars a year. So that would put this figure at around five and a half million dollars. However you do the math, that's a lot. And you're thinking, 
some sorcery scrolls were worth $5 million. But uh, again, no printing press. And this was huge in their culture. And I mean, they had one of the biggest libraries around. But I mean, obviously, just like in our day, some, some rare books are worth a lot. Well, in their day, where there was not even a printing press. I mean, forget first edition. Try like the edition. <laughs> you know? These things were worth a lot. And when they gave up, when they openly confessed and they said, hey, here's what I was doing, they didn't just say, you know, hey, I'm giving it up, guys. They radically repented from it. Repentance is not, you know, confessing is just saying, here's what I'm doing. Repentance is like putting your money where your mouth is. They went and they actually burned these things worth all that money. I mean, that's literally putting your money where your mouth is. These were people who clearly understood what Jesus was talking about when he said that the kingdom of God is kind of like this guy went and found a a treasure in a field and he buried it back, he went and sold everything he had and he bought that field. Or the kingdom of heaven is kind of like this guy who was a merchant of pearls and he found this one pearl that was just priceless. So he sold all his other pearls and everything else that he had so that he could buy that one pearl. And they understood that to lay hold of the kingdom of God, they had to let go of the other things they had laid hold of so that they could have hands free to lay hold of the kingdom. These guys were willing to burn their past to the ground in order to lay hold of what their hope was in Jesus Christ. How about us? When you came to Christ, did you, are you, you know, I mean, are you still trying to hold on to the stuff that you had always been doing? I mean, see, you know, for step one, we probably didn't openly confess anything. So then it made it a little easier to hold on to it if we wanted to. It doesn't have to be something big and bad, but you know, if you've still got priorities that aren't priorities of the way, if you've still got habits that aren't habits of the way, but you're wanting to hold on to those as you lay hold of this, it just doesn't work that way. And these guys understood that, that it wasn't just a private choice for them, it was a public change that took place in their lives. I've got a feeling that when a bunch of guys get together and they burn down five and a half million dollars, people in the community probably took note. (laughs) And half of them probably thought they were crazy. Some of them probably said, why'd you burn it? I would have bought it from you. (laughs) They took note. And we begin to get a glimpse of how this small little group of believers turned their entire city on its head in such a short span of time. And again, all of this has to be understood in the context of last week, the Holy Spirit. If you missed last week's message, please go back and listen to it. It's not only central to this series, it's central uh, to our, our church family. 
and to your life as a Christ follower. I really, I really think last week might have been the most important message I've ever preached. So I'm asking you, if, you, if you've never gone on cypressstreet.org to listen to a message, if you've never uh, you know, gone on or looked for our podcast or something like that, this would be a great week to do it, just to listen to that one message and make sure uh, that you're not missing a part of the gospel like the church in Ephesus was. Namely, the Holy Spirit. That's a huge part of this. But I submit to you today, we would have never heard of the church in Ephesus if they hadn't been willing to make this not just a private choice, but a public change. So, what about us? With the Holy Spirit's help, are we willing to meet needs? In our community, I mean, we do that some. Are we willing to do that more? To get our hands dirty in service? Are we, are we willing to work and strive towards making this a place where people feel safe to come and openly confess what they're leaving behind? Are, are we okay with that? Are we, are we willing to be people who radically repent and do bold things in laying hold of the kingdom and laying hold of Jesus' way? See, the the sobering part of all this is that for many of us, that's pretty hard to imagine. And for some of us, we're not even sure we like the idea of our church doing those things. Or that we're altogether comfortable with that kind of church. I don't really know how to respond to that reality other than to point again to the fact that there is no power on earth like the gospel shared in word and in action. Nothing like it. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the way. Thank you for these examples, these bold, incredible examples from our New Testament. that inspire us, that challenge us to get back to our roots, if you will. And God, we pray that you would help us get back to our roots, that this is not just a, a private religious choice we're making, but this is a public change that's taking place in our life. Help us to share the way by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.